Welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Uh, we have a special guest, uh, yeah. Molly. Our good friend is back. Molly, what uh, what episodes were you on before? You did the Aaron Sorkin terrible Chicago movie. What was that called? Chicago Ten. Chicago yeah. Ten. <laughs> Trial of Chicago Seven. Yeah. Okay. Then what was the other one? Oh, remember. it was Memento? oh. You did Memento. No, I, 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 this is actually my fourth. I just realized that because I also fourth. did. Isn't didn't I also do um oh that one that Netflix movie with Robert Pat Pat oh, and um, Devil of Time Devil yes, of Time. Yes, didn't I, did I do that? Was yeah, you did. Point? It was yeah. season two premiere. You wow. were our first guest on the show. I was two show. for one in one season. That's weird. Yeah. Um, um, we yeah, have brought so you back. Just happy to be back. Really happy to share this space with everybody. <laughs> and I feel like this movie might have. Was this movie your idea? I think it was. I, f- I feel like it. Like you. Yeah. Were the well, of this you. Idea. <laughs> I think I suggested it because what better? You only do anniversary movies, and so what better? You know. I don't know, film row movie to do, but also, <laughs> but also like quintessential movie that you would podcast about. But also, you to- I distinctly remember you telling me no the first time. I don't know why. You're right. You did. I, I did <laughs> yeah. What was your reason? Uh, my reason was that like it's too film bro Right. Right. Okay. Well, obviously we pushed past that. Yeah. I don't know. It just didn't feel, it almost felt like too much. Right, but, but technically, we, this is not my are. pick. This is not my pick. It was Chris's pick. Okay. Well, thank yes. you. Yes. So, so I, I co-signed yourself. it. <laughs> well, I mean, I just I felt like it was a perfect um, piece to look back on because 2001 was the year that all three of us graduated from the same high school and then went off to three different colleges. And this movie came out in the fall of 2001, like just a month after 9-11, basically. And so for me, it was pretty, it was pretty, it was a pretty important flashpoint in my freshman year of college. And I'm very curious to talk about it with you three, you three, you two. (laughs) (laughs) Who else is here? Is that that voice? Molly's voice on her computer. (laughs) (laughs) That's me talking to myself as well. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Wow. We're already there. Uh, Or maybe I'm talking to Frank. Um, (laughs) The. The uh, so so it, it got me excited when Molly suggested it, um, and and I think we should put it on the record now, um, sure. before we forget that she has already requested, um, for season four or five at some point, um, in twenty twenty two to make sure that we revisit David Fincher's The Game for its twenty fifth anniversary. Oh, it's on the record now. It has iconic. To happen. <laughs> <laughs> it has to happen. I feel like okay, that's and personally for me. I mean, that's one of my, I, I feel like I will have almost completed like a film, modern film bro, like, <laughs> I don't even, trifecta, quad, quadrangle, whatever, square, why did I say quadrangle? <laughs> um, but like, yeah, because I'll have done, right, I'll have done a Nolan film then, I'll have done a Richard Colley film, I've done a Fincher film, um, Sorkin, Ooh, Sorkin yeah, counts. it's going to be good, yeah. this, is my, this is my purpose here, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so let's start there how did you guys come across donnie darko your did you all, all see it back in 2001 either in the theaters or on dvd a few months later uh Mal, you go first how did you find it um 
I think I was telling you about this when we, um, full disclosure, uh, Wiper and I did wa- rewatch this together on Saturday. Mm-hmm. He told me. Um, <clears throat> he's a spoiler alert for no one. Um, <laughs> so they, I, so I told him this. So my really good friend, Marsha, who I'm still really good friends with, um, she lived next door to me my sophomore year. So I feel like this was probably like early in our sophomore year of college. So still maybe, so it would have been 2002 at some point, right? Yeah. And she, she just like, she, she was like cooler than me in the way where she probably had more funds available to just like buy DVDs that she heard were cool. Right. And so she bought this DVD, I think not having seen it, but like heard stuff about it. And so we watched it in her room together and we watched it multiple times. We watched the DVD commentary. So I will say it's similar oh, to no. why, like Chris, like you were saying, this is, you know, and I just like a safe space to be honest with the community and everyone here. <laughs> is, <laughs> this was definitely for me too, like a <clears throat> important, my important like entryway into like modern or like indie films, I feel like. And also appreciating DVD commentaries and like sort of that film nerd aspect of it, because I feel like this movie is like tailor made for, you know, like wanting to like and sitting through a DVD commentary because you're like, what? Wow, what did yeah. I just experience? So that is like, I cannot separate also for me, like appreciation of DVD commentaries and like the movie and also being into the DVD commentary because we, wa- we watched the movie well with that on together as well. So very weirdly formative for me as well yeah i think for me i didn't know anything about this movie um because i went to like a pretty like it was a lame school where people were not into like art film it was like everybody was in like golf or like football (laughs) their sorority and and fraternity donnie darko is not probably screened in the state of north carolina when it was first released um i found this i was randomly watching hbo uh it must have been the summer of 2002 and I came across a, a, just this movie, and it just started with him. I think I missed the the opening of it, but I the the when he's riding his bike, um, kind of that one of the first scenes there, and I was transfixed, and I couldn't stop watching it. Uh, and I needed to know like everything about it. I think I watched it like five or six times that summer. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think in, in a similar way, it was definitely one of the first sort of indie uh super arty films that i don't know i just had to i became obsessed with uh immediately uh and just wanted to know everything about it how it was made um i wanted to read everything about richard kelly and his background and how he created this story i wanted to figure out what the whole movie was about so let's start there what is this movie about chris it is uh well yeah that was also a thing i didn't really know much of anything about the late 80s politically but uh it seems to be uh part of the log line that takes place during the presidential election of 1988 the fall and you got a teenager named donnie darko sleepswalks out of his house one night he seems to do this regularly and sees a giant demonic looking rabbit named frank who tells him the world will end in 28 days uh when donnie returns home he finds that a jet engine has crashed into his bedroom what the hell in donnie (laughs) Is Donnie living in a parallel universe? Is he suffering from mental illness? Or will the world really end in late October of 1988? Uh, did you, I mean, I, I, I probably learned who Michael Dukakis is because of this movie. Is that, is that <laughs> yes. weird? 
No, that's that's a, <laughs> I'm a hard agree on that. Oh really? No, oh, come on. The tank? No, no. Tank. <laughs> yeah, no, you no. <laughs> but no, yeah. We went through SNL, but uh, this is a close second, I guess. But was it was it on purpose, the right that this movie comes out at the beginning of Bush two's term and takes place right before Bush one is elected? Yeah, it's like a. I guess it's like a bookend to Reaganism, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of what he intended. Uh, you know, when he was writing this thing, I think he was like, what, 20, pretty early, like 25, 26, something like that. Um, he wanted to make essentially, I don't know, I don't even know, like a critical, would you call this social commentary? Because it's there, know. but it's like not as like, it, it, it doesn't have any sort of edge to it, really. No. Well, for a, oh, go ahead, Chris. I would say for, for a movie that has no interest in being subtle, that's like one of the strange subtleties to it. It is, yeah. And it's yeah, what do you, what do you think, Molly? Uh, I don't think. I mean, Whitebird, I feel like you can pretty uh, concretely answer since you listen. You've read every Richard Kelly interview about this. <laughs> it doesn't and remember. It doesn't mean I remember. <laughs> no, but like Angie, you watched the director's cut and possibly the commentary for the director's cut, yeah, which I have yeah. never done. Yeah. Um, I, the sense I've always gotten from the stuff I've heard him say is like, I don't think he intended it to be a social commentary. I mean, I think there's like just sort of certain elements in there um but it's like i feel like multiple times he said he says like he for them this is like a sci-fi film i mean like yeah, other elements yeah. up but it's not like if yeah it's not first why and foremost. why said it in 88 then i think it's just like a, a gut re- I, he went to usc film school Right, so he, he probably he yeah he picked up these like and little <laughs> ticks you know tricks of the trade i think you're right Ma. i think essentially it's a sci-fi movie that's what he wanted yeah to do. and i again i mean his age right like he was i think like so he was 24 like it's i think it's also again it makes sense right like you set something he has i'm assuming some sort of nostalgia for growing up in the 80s himself yeah. right so like I, I i assume that was i don't have can't remember him explicitly saying that but i assume that was part of the draw as well um you know just when he's if he's writing something that you know that's appealing to him because it's familiar well it's interesting i I just found a quote he goes uh he summarized the script richard kelly the director and writer of course uh as an amusing and poignant recollection of suburban america in the reagan era so poignant doesn't really go together with like social commentary. So it's it's almost yeah, just like but a like flame. he would have been yeah, and like he would that's when he would have grown up because when was he if he was twenty four like he was born in like the late mid late seventies. So I mean yeah yeah that tracks for someone who's yeah he's he's probably the age of S Darko in okay. you know we don't that's uh, just can we that not, just yeah that just triggered that. a lot of people. Why would you do that? Um, I, I've never seen it. I mean, I think it would be interesting because you because you have tons of notes here about he's only done three films. Yes, I think we can't like move forward until we talk about his failure, if that makes sense. So, like Donnie Darko is his first film. He does Southland Tales. I mean, we, do we even want to talk about Southland Tales? Like, no, let's not. Okay, we're not going to talk about Southland Tales. Let's talk about the box though. Let's talk about the 2009, box, which me and Molly <laughs> own, by the way. We are owners. <laughs> Also, yes, a late, a late night COVID purchase, a delir- the delirium Delirious. of COVID uh, virtual hangouts when it's like, oh, I guess we're watching the bot. Shoot, it's only $2 more to buy it. I guess we're buying it. And then we both own the box in perpetuity now. So and like, are. regret it, but don't at the same time. <laughs> sure. Hopefully I mean, Richard Kelly got a dollar out of it. I don't know. I guess I what, 
I saw the box in the theaters opening weekend, uh, like a 10 p.m. show, and it was my wife and I, the only ones in the theater except for one mysterious man in a trench coat, which Shut is the up. exact way to see this movie. Shut up. In a trench, <laughs> an actual trench coat? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, the thing that, so what adds to like the weird allure of the cult status of this movie is that like Richard Kelly's never done anything since. Yeah. And like legitimately nothing. Not but like still you know, does interviews about how he's done nothing, <laughs> and like yeah. like clockwork, like every six months since two thousand nine. What, what has he been trying to do? Right. So that I mean that was that was probably what I was most interested in. We're talking about like tracing the life of a film, especially on its twentieth anniversary, uh, and the kind of legacy it's um, managed to maintain over the years, not just with our generation, but also now I think it's starting to connect with younger generations too. Um, which is super strange, but also like, I'm excited about it because I love this movie, but, and yet, uh, Richard Kelly is just in Hollywood purgatory. Um, so I was trying to like trace through the different years. So in 09, when the box came out, um, but it wasn't clear that it was a, monumental failure it's his only mainstream release right warner brothers production and distribution and uh at that point he had uh been working on a 3d thriller set in manhattan in the year 2014 (laughs) five years in the future and it was supposed to be filmed using full cgi motion capture so (laughs) like planet of the apes with just the apes um i who knows what that could have been didn't pan out probably because warner brothers said it was fun working with you mr kelly we'll see you never um (laughs) and then in 2011 he had managed to uh get himself um on the map with this uh script called corpus christi um which was a contemporary once again thriller suspense film um set in the coastal city on a coastal city of texas revolving around a mentally unstable iraq war vet named patience del rosa who forges a strange friendship with his boss, Ralph Selverson. So just like, just regular, like, I don't know, like suspense drama, almost like Cherry, the movie that came out earlier this oh, year. Oh yeah, Cherry. Right. Fun ones. And, and uh, but once again, falls through the cracks. Then he starts uh, working very closely with James Gandolfini in uh, 2013 on a true crime movie called Amicus. But then, of course, Gandolfini dies. And so there goes both the project and the money for it. Um, and he reported that to The Hollywood Reporter in 2016. And then finally, he he was quiet for a few years after that. Um, but he did just do a really extensive interview earlier this year in February with Slash Film, in which he uh, just kind of pontificates about the the world of streaming, especially in a you know COVID era, it's um, the future. Right, exactly. He predicted Southland Tales is now reality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he says in this interview that he's got tons of different projects in the mix, which means that he's. I don't. I'm just imagining there's like composition notebooks lining his room, and none of them make sense. But yeah. he he uh, seems to be very interested in. Like he has kind of always been, especially with Southland Tales, doing something outside the box in terms of like, would it be a film? Would it be a TV show? Would it be somewhere in between? I don't know. When I was reading this interview, it very much gave me the vibes of our conversation from last week, Dan, about the Fear Street trilogy. Like something like that seems like, but just like even more batshit would be right up Richard Kelly's, um, uh, you know, right up his alley. But uh, 
it's it, he says that he's got at least 10 different things in the works but i fear that he just has no money no organizational skills is that too too no, much shade <laughs> no i think he needs like a project manager he needs to hire right. a project manager for himself i mean it's crazy because he he says all this right he has all these projects working but donnie darko was essentially his first it's his first direction right right yeah his first script that he wrote after he got out of film school right so i think he's there's like three years after he got out of film school spent 28 days writing it right so it just it's a call back to the film because it takes place over 28 days it was filmed in 28 days like so this is like not uh, on a budget of 4.5 million dollars who who got that him who got the budget for him drew barrymore mm-hmm. right like she is instrumental in this film getting made it just seems to me that like in that moment as a young person who was unproven when you just have to go for it and not think about really the consequences or think about failing all that much he was successful but the moment he got success it sort of like crushed him for some reason um because if, i guarantee you if you had richard kelly and said hey i'm gonna give you a month to write a movie and then i'm gonna give you a month to direct it right now and i'm gonna give you a million dollars he would come out with something freaking awesome but like if you give him uh, uh, six months to write something and 10 million dollars <laughs> it's gonna end up like the box right like it's he just doesn't there's something about him where it's almost like he doesn't want to succeed or something you know what I mean? Like he has that weird fatalistic sort of tragedy figure about himself now, mm-hmm. which kind of feeds into the movie. Am I wrong about this? Does it not feed into the movie I mean, more that like he's kind of a loser now? <laughs> wow. Okay. I think we're oh, sorry, like, Richard Kelly, I think we're pos- uh, listeners. <laughs> this, this episode is definitely going to be bloated and over an hour, but also I think we're going to do doing the most with this Richard Kelly uh, mythology. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, I'll just, I'll, I'll offer some other context. I will say listening to you talk, listening to both of you guys talk. So one thing is like that I've realized is Hollywood has like perpetual black holes that people can fall into. Like Richard Kelly, I yeah. think for us, because he feels like, because he shot out of the gate is like this boy wonder. And, um, this film was so like meaningful or like impactful for us in very specific ways. Um, it feels like we're very hyper aware of sort of like his, you know, seemingly failed trajectory, but like one, he's still fairly young. And two, um, as I was pointing out to Whitebird, one of my favorite, um, directors, the, uh, champion and king of the erotic adult drama, Adrian Lynn, <laughs> had, oh, has, God, had, yeah. has had a 20 year gap yeah. after his, like, you know, there's, t- and I mean, Terrence Malick, that's probably by his own design, but like there's tons of like really sort of important, impactful directors that like often for different reasons. And I feel like Adrian Lynn, I remember looking, I was like, where has he been? And there was just an interview with him. And it was just like, again, also classic him, like having all these projects that started and stopped. Like he had something in 2015 with Nicole Kidman attached and it just disappeared. Like, so it's Hollywood's brutal. I think is what I'm trying to say. So like some of that's on Richard Kelly. Also, I think, you know, like he's got, um, I guess, I don't know who would be similar, but he's very clear all the time that he has to have full control over a project and he has to do the script, the direct, whatever. So I think that's also part of what I imagine hinders his ability to, you know what I mean? Kind of get traction on stuff is because 
he's not going to just do anything, right? He's not going to take on, he like basically in some of those interviews you guys are talking about, he says he's not going to do a pre-existing properties, only doing original scripts, you know, and probably only original scripts that he also gets to direct. So it's like, he's, so I guess in that sense, I agree where it's, it is a little bit of like the self-fulfilling prophecy and the self-failure because it's like, he's very like rigid on the sort of types of projects that he'll do. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and it's, it's funny too. Like we talk about, um, you know, how hard is it to get a, a, a movie made? And like, there's a, you know, a joke about like, Oh, he's already successful. He's a white male. It should be sort of, it's still hard to get films made. And if you look at like the start of Donnie Darko and how it, how it became into being, it's like, it's almost a stroke of luck on some level. Like it doesn't hurt. He went to USC. That's a huge, huge leg up. Like how many people go to that film school? Point man. Uh, exactly. Right. Uh, but you look at the path of it and it's like, this thing shouldn't have gotten made. Like there's just like, there's too many coincidences of like, basically you have what is essentially uh, an amazing script and everybody who read it thought it was an amazing script, but nobody wanted to film it. And to Molly's point, because part of the reason is he wanted to direct it. Um, but it was only because certain people got involved at the right time that this film ever saw the light of day. And there's so many stories to tell about that. Uh, the fact that it even got played in theaters is kind of a miracle. Um, so it kind of just goes to show you, you know, even if you have go to USC, even if you have all this, these legs up, it's very hard to get a, a movie made. It's very hard to get someone to give you millions of dollars to put your vision on the screen. And I love that there's like a quote here, like he says, God bless Jason Schwartzman, <laughs> because, um, you know, the script was going around and eventually one of the reasons that it got a different level of attention is Jason Schwartzman was attached to play the lead, yeah. uh, which would have been, I think, a complete disaster. Am I wrong about saying that? Like Jason Schwartzman? 100%. Yeah, no, uh, no doubt in my mind. And he was actually set to star and they were ready to go production but then the schedule changed and Jason had to drop out. Um, and they also asked, I didn't, I just read this. I can't verify it. It's on, Vul it's on Vulture, so I don't know if I believe it. But Vince Vaughn was offered the lead. <laughs> what? Yes, Vince Vaughn. A 30-year-old Vince Vaughn is offered the lead of this movie. Um, that feels fake. Because I also feel like there's quotes from him that say, like, I knew immediately when Jake walked in, it was him. He had this holding <laughs> So, like, there's a lot of just, there's, like, yeah. stories floating around about this casting that don't make sense. There's a lot of myth-making, right, by Richard Kelly himself about the how this story came to be, how the movie came into production. Like, the whole written in 28 days, shot in 28 days. I don't believe that. I don't think that that's probably true. So it lines up with the movie. I mean, so there's a lot of stuff where it's hard to sort of decipher what actually uh, was the intention here. Um, how about this? Let's say, hypothetically, do we think this script gets made if he is, didn't go to USC? Film school, that is. I, I don't know much about... What? Who are his parents? Someone texts. Someone texts Drax and asks. Like, Drax. He would Let's have very specific knowledge about this. Um, <laughs> he would know. I mean, yes, I think he had. I think it feels like luck, but it's like so many situations that you describe where it's like there's an inordinate amount of like young white men in their mid twenties who get who get a lot of the big breaks, you know, that yeah. are like. So I think like one, duh. Two, yes, like. It's that he had the right people, like you said, pay attention that like, I mean, having Jason Schwartzman, like, attached to anything, 
I mean, Jason Schwartzman's like a Hollywood insider, right? Like he's a Coppola. He's like a, you know what I mean? Like he's, so it's like something like that. I think just the web of Hollywood, right? I imagine like connects you to this broader or puts eyes on you, right? And then also, yeah, I do think it was the luck. And he talks about that in like this, the, um, uh, da, 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 the cast commentary. There's two different DVD commentaries, re- listeners. Um, <laughs> and the one with Drew Barrymore and the rest of the cast um, is, he talks about that a lot. He constantly refers to Drew Barrymore as the fairy godmother and Flower Films as the fairy godmother. So it was like, yeah. it was one of the first films that Flower Films, Nancy and Drew's production company produced. And so I think like to all of your points about they got the theatrical release. So he did, he was, it was luck and a fluke in the sense of like, anybody who kind of gets breaks the right person in this case drew barrymore loved it so much that she was like i'm gonna make this happen you know what i mean so and drew barrymore like at you know she can she made it happen um and then it's like even going to after shooting and all that kind of stuff they had no distributor and so like there's all these stories and i again is this true you know new market films put out memento and that was successful earlier that year. And then um, someone basically set up a screening so that the new market execs and Christopher Nolan was in the audience to see the to see Donnie Darko. And he was, quote unquote, instrumental in getting them to pick up the film, which, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But it's sort of, you know, one sort of uh, moment of luck or whatever you want to call it, serendipity after another they get this thing on the screen and then eventually what happens to it is it completely dies right like doesn't do anything whatsoever at the box office and um you know it's it's one of those things where you know it it had a second life on dvd that's where we found it right did any of you guys see this in the theater hell no no (laughs) no because i also don't know if like i feel like this is also like early era like but I mean, I could be wrong, but I feel like there was sort of like, correct me if I'm wrong though, like an indie film boom, right? Like in the yes. late 90s. Like, so I don't feel like a lot of, like maybe sort of after this, like I remember seeing smaller films in the theater, like later in college or sort of after that. But I feel like there was like, I don't know, like a film like this wouldn't have been even like I lived in Chicago. So, but I don't, I don't remember being in the theater. It was definitely, like I said, it was totally like word of mouth. Like my friend yeah probably heard from somebody else and then oh this film is wild you got to see it and bought the dvd and that's how we watched it i'll also point out nancy um the uh the went to usc the uh, co-owner of flower films just saying Mm -hmm. i mean my point and she's super rich so like the point is like there's just like you like all these things you're like oh it makes sense that it it is a fluke but it's also just like you know yeah, like somebody, I feel like there's references to like Drew Barrymore got him song rights because like there's just these things where it's yeah. like the right people, which is a class that's actually he's a classic Hollywood story now that I'm talking about this. <laughs> In the sense, that's what you need. It's the right people with the pre existing connections to, you know, take a shine to you and champion you. And that's exactly what he got, you know? Yeah. That, that's how Donnie Darko got made. I mean, it, there was a point in which this movie definitely could have just gone sideways because they were threatening to make it straight to DVD. They were, you know, they were very close on some of the deadlines for getting the rights to those huge pop songs. And, 
if that had happened, like I really think it's quite possible, you know, Drew Barrymore not picking up the phone one last time and somebody not clearing the rights for, you know, Tears for Fears and that, you know, you could have just had like a a slightly less uh, marketed film out on DVD. The only reason I actually saw it was because I volunteered at my campus radio station and we got like free random CDs and DVDs all the time, right? And there was just this big box, but like, a radio station, especially one that doesn't have like a proper like film review show or anything, which ours didn't, um, we had no use for those DVDs. So that would just be in this box filled with crap that like any college kid could come by and take whatever they wanted. And I just happened to grab it and I don't even know what really caught my eye about it. I don't even remember if like I had heard from somebody about it, but just like that sheer kind of happenstance of like oh this looks kind of messed up it's about a a guy who see who sleepwalks and talks to a evil rabbit and you know you put it on the on you know a dvd player in the dorms with friends and it just turns out to be like cool as hell especially to like a group of 18 year olds right <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's it's interesting that the film the film was complete financial failure at first yeah so it's released a month after september 11th it uh, prominently featured a plane engine falling out of the sky. So obviously, if you're alive back during 9-11, you know, people weren't going to movies. They weren't. It was a very strange time. And so this movie was not hardly marketed at all because of that. Uh, it was also dumped in 58 theaters, which is not even a real release. It's an extremely no. limited release. It's not a wide release at all. So, it, you know, it fails at the box office. But I think a lot of people have come to it. You know, how Molly came to it, how you came to it, Chris, how I came to it. It's sort of through word of mouth, through the home video. I think it made like $10 million in DVD sales in the United States alone. Um, but why? I guess the big, the core question is why? Why back then did it connect so well with all three of us? And then kind of the bigger question is why does it still connect with people? Uh, what is it about the film that um i don't know like uh attracts people so much what do you guys think well i think that the probably i think there's a real interesting um kind of uh cross section of references that come up when looking at this movie especially 20 years later where it's like you had this group of people that it connected with and they felt like it was either um you know they're either saying this fondly or they're saying it get like it's a gimmick like he's trying to emulate the magic of spielberg which is half true but then yeah, there's also people saying Right. But then also like Ebert is pointing out, you know, that this movie comes out a couple weeks after Mulholland Drive. And it's definitely got this kind of super just like strange. I wouldn't call it Lynchian, but he definitely has like uh, uh, it's it's offbeat enough uh, where you get like people just almost admiring it because it's insane. Like it became a huge midnight movie right after the fact. Uh, It ran for like two years or something at some like. chic movie theater in new york right uh uh, so like there's this it has this very like i can't think of anybody else that was doing it at that time like a teenage lynch or like a darker spielberg like that that wasn't happening 
um, in this time period, except arguably for AI, which came out that year and was literally by <laughs> Spielberg by way of Kubrick, <laughs> which is also one of the best movies of 2001. Oh, <laughs> oh we'll pin that for another episode. <laughs> Molly, what do you think? What do you what do you think it, it, back then? How it attracted people? <laughs> I'm just really thrown off by that AI comment. Um, <laughs> we gather, we gather, regather myself. <laughs> Jude Log is a cyborg Jillo. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. okay, don't throw the Jude Log card at me. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> how it's dare weak, you? How dare you, sir? Um, <laughs> play into everyone's weakness. Um, yeah, I ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think that it was one of the first cha cha cha, like the first modern films. Like, okay, I'm trying to I'm trying to trace my own origin. Films, <laughs> gross. Um, well, no, because it's like like you're sort of saying what appealed to me. I think one there was sort of it was sort of a rare at that time uh i feel like we have different things now like stranger things and like other stuff you know yeah. that was the first thing to pop in my head but like a rare thing where it was like somewhat like teens or like kids were in a movie that was you know kind of weird right like yeah. and it wasn't but that felt like mm, but but wasn't i don't know like it was just i, I think he really captured a unique combinations of like things and tones like it was sci-fi but it wasn't super sort of more i mean i say this is like a huge star wars fan like corny or like whatever right or like there wasn't a lot of you know like effects in this movie right like and it seemed kind of creepy right but it wasn't scary like in a traditional mm-hmm. way. it wasn't gory it wasn't you know uh like it 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 had a like but it also had like a um familiarity and like a softness and a warmth to it right like there's moments of like everyone is like i I feel like and drew barrymore pointed this out in one of the commentaries which is and i feel like this is very true it's like a really appealing thing about this movie is it's about like dark subject matter but there's this warmth that permeates it like everyone's very like kind of warm to each other and like there's there's some foundational like you know sort of quiet relationships between the family and there's people trying to care about each other you know like i feel like rewatching i was struck such a like a small but like really nice scene with the parents talking to the therapist his therapist and sort of just being like Mm -hmm, you know so what should we do and the mom trying to hold back tears and comfort each other just like that sort of smallness of like and warmness of like parents who are like our kid is struggling and we're trying to figure out what to do like, okay. Yeah. Like if you think we should do that, then let's do it. We're not sure what to do anymore. You know, like these small, like the dinner scene moment and, you know, just like Don- also like Donnie Darko being like an asshole, but like, in a, like, I think maybe I sort of also his character, there's all those moments with like the fear and love scene in the house class <laughs> with the um, assembly with Patrick Swayze, where he stands up and is just like, whatever he says, like, go fuck yourself or something you're the antichrist yeah you're yeah, the you're antichrist the and you know all the times where he sort of like kind of embodies this smart ass thing but like in a way where you're like fuck yeah like that shit i wanted to say at different yeah. points too there's this i think just this sort of again like softness and warmness and appeal to that he somehow made happen sort of in this movie that is like really weird and bonkers but like it's totally 
I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like the characters are sketched in a way where like you also enjoy watching all the characters, even right. like the well, weird I, ones. I I mean, watching it as a 30 something, you know, parent, uh, I was really struck this time around by specifically how cool the interactions were between the parents and the kids where like the parents definitely had like their authority roles, but they were still very much like very empathetic for with their their very dysfunctional children and the dysfunctional family dynamic as a whole, like with uh, how, how Mary McDonald, uh, you know, the the little things she does to like signal that uh, she thinks that um, Beth Grant's character is insane. Um, And the, the dad, like, even though he's, you know, clearly a a staunch Reaganite, he very much still like thinks it's uh, he like cute, like the opening montage where like he blows yeah. the leaf blower yes, in i comment on that it's just like so it's so innocuous but also so yeah. dad like and cute yes right exactly like just so many little moments like that where it's clear like the cast clicked and the script um really showed like you said that warmth while still having a very genuine like hardness to uh you know the 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 kind of angsty teen um, protagonist. So you don't see that's a very tricky balance and you don't see that very often if ever really in movies or TV nowadays anyway. What about you, Wiper? Um, I think for me personally, especially back then um, there weren't, I don't know. There weren't a lot of movies out that were like about questioning reality, I guess. Mm. Uh, And so I know looking, what was that? The Matrix, but yeah, yeah, the Matrix, yeah, but like <laughs> the year before the Matrix, the biggest movie that year, uh, <laughs> but uh, but not in that way. Well, actually, they do kind of link now that I'm thinking about it. Oh yeah, totally. Um, no, for sure. But I think, but there's a smallness, me- right? There's a warmth and a smallness and like a weird relatability that for someone well, like that's like in their late teens. Like the, the Matrix is, and the Matrix is like a cool, like a cool, like sh- you know, sort of chic, like crazy representation of that some of that stuff johnny darko's just like the smallness of it i feel like gives it a weird accessibility i i I, want to let wiper finish but i also want to kind of throw this out there the thing that i'm thinking of is like johnny darko is a mashup of the matrix and pump up the volume oh my god okay all right wiper finish (laughs) um so i would say like there's i think there's probably three elements where it was like it's the question of reality in a really true sense, like not to say, oh, what, you know, like, what's my life about? It's not like, what's all of life about? Which is not, everybody does that as a teenager, I think, uh, I would hope. Um, but that sort of uh, existential sort of exploration was a huge point for me. It was like, oh, like, I do this in my normal life. This character's doing it. So I'm kind of wondering, what's his answer? Uh, then you have the questioning of the society around you. Mm-hmm. which is sort of, um, you know, very prominent in this film. You, you talked about the life fear stuff. Um, it, there's that catcher in the rye, sort of everybody's a phony um, lens that, that goes throughout this entire movie. And in fact, when uh, they cast um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal for this, when he walked in, um, Richard Kelly said, hey, it's, it's Holden Caulfield, Caulfield, right? The main character of Catcher in the Rye. Uh, so there's that element of sort of, criticizing adult society that i really uh, was attached to um the music 
is just like unbelievable. Absolutely. The music is totally <laughs> like the music. Like, it's like a, it's again, it's analogous to not in a lot of ways, but still in some ways gardens, the, the sort of weird yeah. appeal of garden state where it's like, there's certain things that both of these, both those directors were never able to recapture. <laughs> right. But like they did some things where you're like, Whoa, there's elements that they combined here to make this like, relatable or like you connect or are drawn to it in a certain way and i think the main thing in both their cases was like the music selection was just like really fantastic but also let's talk about the how the casting in this was fantastic. oh my god yeah we got like that's also a huge part of the set this too like the fact that he got he got this cast is like so crazy to me because like like everyone is perfect yeah, I mean, his sister, he got his sister cast, Megan Gyllenhaal, as his actual, you know, sister. Uh, Mary McDonald, who, yeah. uh, I mean, Ooh. Molly's going on and on about her. <laughs> when we're watching it. What, what is it about her, you think, she's Molly? Like, that, like... She is just, she's like Hollywood royalty. She's like old school Hollywood vibes, like in the best way. Like her screen presence, right? And her ability to go from like... Like you were just drawn to her when she's on screen and she has this like the way that she carries herself and sort of like the fun, subtle things she does, but then also how she can switch from sort of being like, not even switch, like she encapsulates and makes a totally real seeming mom who's like, you know, sort of like hardened and like in like an, a relatable way, but also then she has these real like soft moments too that like totally track for her character um but yeah she's also just like a babe and like an old hollywood way right like i don't know she's just like super iconic to me as an actress in general um so like yeah and her dynamic with like the dad and the guy who's cast as the dad is just like has really perfect dad vibes and you totally believe he would be married to mary mcdonald somehow um and like i mean like the most iconic casting I would argue in the whole film is Beth Grant. Um, Like, like Uh, to me, she's, yeah, yeah, like to this day, the most, I mean, the holistically impactful film, but like the single possibly most impactful is I seriously, I'm beginning to doubt your commitment to Sparkle sparkle Motion. Like that is like, like her performance in this movie is so, it's like hard to, like, hard to explain is like, um, I feel like the girls and the gays get it maybe in ways you guys don't of like somebody who's like an iconic sort of character and like not, she's not camp, but she also just like, she fully embodies this like character that just toes the line of like feeling unrealistic and like over the top, but she never is like, she just so on that line where, and it just is like this, such a memorable character. Like she just, every scene she's in, she just, you know what i'm saying like it's just a truly like super memorable yeah performance um and then patrick swayze who how did he how did he agree to do this you know because like his character ends up being you know a child pornography you know person like it's like why would he sign up for that like that doesn't seem like something that he would do was he doing a lot of like independent film back then i don't really know his career that well that well at all well, he I mean, he had he did to Wong Fu thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. So okay. I feel like that kind God, of showed that he was iconic. game for anything, yeah. right? 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think that, I mean, he was kind of unfortunately a joke, um, because he, you know, right in a row, what was like Roadhouse, Ghost, and Point Break, which I, which two of those movies I adore, but very much was seen as kind of just like, you know, the, and of course, Dirty Dancing, um, the beefcake that, uh, just did cheesy stuff. But I feel like, there was at some point in the 90s um what was that did any of you guys see um fatherhood <laughs> i feel like that was probably my introduction to him as like a 10 year old 1993 it came out fatherhood. yeah 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 <laughs> uh halle berry and patrick swayze it's, no idea what you're talking about oh my god um it it, it was clear that uh he he was a guy that that was up for doing pretty much anything and uh, so while the, I was definitely also kind of surprised, like who would agree to do any, who it would be hard for anybody, I think, to agree to do that role. Um, but he but he murders it like that. The, it, oh, yeah. it's, it becomes so clear. It's almost like um, I mean, it very much it gave me vibes, of course, of like Tom Cruise's character in Magnolia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the self-help guru stuff was he was so much a part of like the late eighties, early nineties. And then it like, you know, trans morphed into the uh, like pickup artist stuff of the late nineties, early two thousands. And the, the fact that there was this kind of um, the Beth Grant, Beth Grant character, like you, you completely believed that she bought into it. But then especially like now as once again, 30 something teacher, like, trying to think like oh yeah i can totally see like her somehow just like because nobody wanted to deal with it nobody wanted to tell her no just like administration at this school was even though it's like i don't know some kind of prep school um yeah. is just like okay you know kitty do whatever you want show them your weird videos and yeah i guess we'll hire him for 300 bucks to go do this assembly you know where it's like it does not seem like uh, something that should be happening, but in this strange world of Middlesex, uh, you, it's just believable enough that um, everybody, all the adult, you know, enough of the adults in this town would be eating it up that uh, it w- it, they, they would let it happen. And just like they would, you know, let a character like Beth Grant's also like <laughs> scream up. Obs- you know about the obscenities and uh how awful watership down and graham greens the destructors <laughs> are you know yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean you know looking at all of it it's sort of you look the music the script the cast it, it absolutely feels like a lightning in a bottle moment and like look there's a lot of movies that are made for five million dollars or less every year i would probably put it at like 300 maybe 200 to 300 movies every year that get get that budget um and then most of them are terrible or duds and then every once in a while you get something like this um and i think when you have either of you seen the director's cut of this movie i've steered clear no and molly you haven't seen either so i am the only person here seen it i saw it in the theater (laughs) in the theater when they when they released it what Uh, i also did see richard uh southland tales with richard kelly in the audience right next to me 
Which I have still somehow evaded. And now I fear me just saying this out loud means I'm going to be forced to watch that with White Bird at some point. (laughs) Right? Or did we? No, absolutely. No, I've tried. I've tried to rewatch it. No, I think we we toyed with this idea, rewatching it at some point over the last year and a half. And like like, you backed out because you're like, I can't do it. It's it's too self destructive. Like, I don't even have it in me to like hurt me in that way anymore. Um, (laughs) uh, But like, you look at the director's cut, and I'll be honest, director cut is, is a complete mess. (laughs) uh and it takes this film and it really it it just is a perfect example of how everything has to come together in exactly the right way at exactly the right time with the right people to make a great film that's gonna last you know decades and you know why do we think that this one is still resonates well with us it's like a subjective thing it's part of our history it's part of growing up it's part of being in our 20s and trying to figure out the world and this movie sort of in some way helped us um why do you think that there's been this cult surrounding the film for so long and, and why is that perpetuated why does it keep going why are people going back to this over and over again why can't richard kelly shake the ghost of this film <laughs> you know in a way like what is it about it outside of our own subjective experience right because we saw it at a really pivotal time in our lives but it's it's way beyond us. Yeah. Right. This thing is huge. It you know it really got a second life in the UK um, around 2003 2004 when the directors came out. It just became this huge thing over there, even more so here in the states. Uh, why why do we think that is with younger people, older people? Um, what makes people kind of dip their toe back into this movie over and over again? Yeah, I didn't know about the UK thing at all until you put it in our notes. Um, yeah. That uh, independent article is nuts there's yeah. uh the quote that you have here um where it says there like there's two kinds of darkoists <laughs> <laughs> jake the jake the rabbits the people that uh quote um have the film that represents an excuse to sound off on complex scientific theory uh and then there are others where it's like just about like the intense you know, isolation, loneliness of, of teenager years, which is universal, right? Would, you know, obviously uh, transcend across the pond. Um, but I mean, it, it's, it does, it fits, it checks those very two intense boxes, like the, you know, the time travel stuff. Like you can think of any other time travel movie that people have argued about over and over again, the Terminator movies and Back to the Future and all that. And it's like, those are just fun movies, but there's like something intensely personal and deeply painful about uh the character of donnie darko um the kind of you know the quotables from the film that it just it's got that it's that cross-section of just like the angsty adolescence and the dark sci-fi stuff and it like just barely like it it straddles that line and i don't know about the director's cut but i read a little bit i could not handle very much about like the tangent universe <laughs> oh, like, dude, yeah. what actually you know happens in the end of this film whether or not you know uh the the timeline that we are uh, privy to in the film is uh, something that actually happens versus just something that you know happened in an alternate universe that you know makes the characters have deja vu in that montage whatever the fuck happens at the end of this movie it ultimately doesn't matter but it matters enough to you know that and the internet just like fuels those kinds of people um, it, it, on both ends of the spectrum, the, you know, uh, angsty teenager side and the scientific wormhole side. So that's my answer. What do you think, Molly? 
Um, yeah, I think I'll jump in on the same. I just, I just like to like all of my appearances have like the through thread that I'm going to say, which is like, Ooh, yeah. these film bros. It's like, I do think, <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, try this on for size. So like, cause I've been thinking about this cause it's like, again, to the point of, um, Whiteford sort of talking about like, you know, how Southland Tales especially is just like off the rocker and I don't know, different things where it's, I think this also represents an example of the really interesting ideas, but also, cause this was something I will say also, I re-listened to part of the cast commentary and everybody was like, loved Richard Colley. It was kind of crazy. Like in this cast commentary, cause it was like, there's two commentaries on the DVD. It's one with him and Jake and then one with him and like Nancy drew, um, Beth, Grant, Mary McDonald, Osborne Holmes, um, who was a dad, and Jenna Malone. And like that whole group, like Mary McDonald, who's like, and she's talking, I mean, she's worked with like tons of directors, had a super long career, and she's just the same with Drew Barrymore. And they were both talking about how he just was like a really receptive, open director. And anyways, all this to say of like, it's, and again, kept referring to like Drew Barrymore as this like godmother film and really helped you know, kind of set the tone for the movie and sort of give feedback. And like, I feel like it definitely represents something where he, to Wiper's point earlier, like something calcified in him or maybe sort of went off the rocker as it often does with these like dudes that tend to just like want more and more and be like fixated on like being involved in all aspects, a la Sorkin, where it's like he's at his worst when he's doing everything, right? Yeah, and he doesn't have yeah. people collaborators to rail him in. Like on West Wing, he had some really good exec producers like John Wells and like Tommy Shlami and like they, you know, and they were really instrumental in helping craft the tone of that show. You know, and then you go, you know, or other things he did, like the combination of him and Fincher, amazing and social network, right? And then you get something like freaking newsroom and you're like, wow, they really <laughs> gave you carte blanche and you're so far along that you're like, yes, I can do it. And he doesn't have it's like a writer without a good editor, right? It's like somebody who like people off a lot of times people are at their best when they have the the right combination of people around them and they're receptive to, you know what I mean? The most things. And I, I yeah. get the sense that he maybe didn't have that on his other projects. Um, so it's just like the lightning in a bottle. Um, as well, it's like creatively, this is lightning in a bottle is the right group of people to create that actually perhaps a more collaborative element to like create something. Um, and also to the point of like, this is like a cater made film like Chris was implying for like the sci-fi rewatchability elements. Like there's things that pay off when you rewatch it. A la under the silver lake, Wipert. Future yeah, I, was, I was gonna bring it up. I know, I I, I I know my audience here. But that that is a really good example. I mean under the silver lake is like three notches above this in terms of just like the rabbit holeness. But but this is like again a more subtle version of that. So I think it plays into like the commentary the dvd commentary being cool having it on dvd and rewatching it right and picking up on these little things you know like the little moments in the infomercial that you catch on that like sort of foreshadow the patrick swayze stuff mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. the rewatch things of just these little elements that you sort of put together where you get to the end and you're like oh wait what happened let me rewatch it and then it's like oh wait now i can sort of see you put the pieces together so i do think probably for all of us and for just sort of movies that get a cult following that tends to be somewhat of a common element that there's 
they don't completely spell stuff. It's interesting movie. The things are all clicking and they don't completely spell stuff out for you in a way that like rewards multiple viewings. Right. Cause to me, that's an essential element of a cult classic is that there's some infinite rewatchability about it. Right. Yeah. I think too, the, the, the element that you guys sort of hinted at before that I think it makes it have such long legs and a long life in terms of like an important cultural artifact is it's it's really easy to watch yeah like it's not a typical indie art movie that would someone would call it intellectual or an art film it has those elements without a doubt but ultimately it, it comes across like a zemeckis film or a spielberg film just kind of demented and so like oh. there's that sugariness and i think mal you brought this up and said stranger things I watched this, you know, I was watching it with you Saturday night. And I just couldn't get over how indebted Stranger Things is and that sort of nostalgia, sci-fi, whatever you want to call it, that is immensely popular. Right? I mean, but can not... indebted to this. Right. Can we not also see the through line, though, to like... <laughs> I mean, not... I don't think it's a one-to-one, but the through line of like E.T. And like, I mean, what you described is yeah. just sort of like it's like a demented version of E.T., uh, like you know with like these the like family elements the like alienated kids the like different you know sort of whatever the hero trajectory i mean that's a huge part yes. of the movie too yeah. that i think is also maybe like underlying appealing as i'm thinking about it like obviously all of us subjectively you know attracted to this sort of somewhat relatable kind of alienated character that's but like a really relatable alienated teen that's a hero right of the movie right yeah. like he's a, and he's a hero in like a way that's outside of himself he doesn't just save the girl he did whatever he saves the world in a very <laughs> like but i don't mean but not in a dramatic way not in a superhero no, no, way no. like you said he pays yeah. attention he figures stuff out right and him being able to see things that other people that's very appealing to like a tortured teen like all of the people on this call um yeah. <laughs> exactly is that you know it's that theme of like oh shit i see things other people don't or i connect or i feel alienated because i don't connect to society in a certain way or i see things or i'm interested in other things and it's like literally donnie's like you know he's seeing things other people aren't literally like with frank and stuff like that but then he's also like making connection like intellectual connections like his conversations with noel wiley's character you know, and these other things. And then he literally is able to save people's lives at the end, you know, by like putting that together in a meaningful way. Um, I think, so I also think that sort of relatable alien teen character who gets to be a hero in a way that's like very small and like appealing. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's not saving, yeah. it's like literally like I saved, he saves his family and friends at the end, right? Like, that's what he does. It's a, I mean, it, he saves the world, but like, we don't see the rest of it. We just see that he saves the people that he cares about. And like, that's kind of, that's kind of cool and rare, mm -hmm. I think, is like a narrative for something that's sort of, um, one can connect with in a film like this. But yeah, definitely like the warmth, the rewatchability. Um, again, the characters are fun to watch, you know, just like kind of seeing what everybody does. Dewey. Seth Rogen and the the singer from Phantom Planet as the town bullies Gross. just showing and, up. But again, like Noah Wiley, diabetic Noah Wiley, hashtag Schwartzman connections. See, it just all right, it's yeah. everybody's friends and like connections in this movie. I remember reading yeah. something too when you were thinking about Patrick Swayze from before um, that there was something. I feel like it might have been in that oral history article you linked to, where it said like Nancy 
forget her last name, but the flower Drew's flower films partner was like instrumental in getting like Noah Wiley and Patrick Swayze and stuff like that. Again, she probably like knew their agents and sent them the scripts and was like, Hey, this is, you know, a risky thing that you want to like take on or whatever. Um, to close this out, do we think that Richard Kelly can ever do this again? <laughs> I don't see how, un- unfortunately. I just think that it's it it almost feels like like you said, Molly, I think the comparison to Adrian Lynn was was spot on because uh, uh he's got a movie coming out supposedly next year first in 20 oh years. yeah affleck and our oh my gosh first yeah. in line oh, over here i told wiper in here already crashed my dreams <laughs> i'm like and he doesn't whatever he doesn't get it so anyways so so like something like that could happen but and and i will be happy and I, once again i'll be first in line but i the just like you were saying earlier dan that there's like that exact moment in time where everything you know, the, the planets were aligned and that's when it hit hard and that's what it worked. And that's when they also managed to get this movie made. And I, it just, it's too much magic to, to expect that you'd ever see something like it again. Um, but Robert Zemeckis did it over and over again. Right. Right, But he's a stable, he's a stable man. (laughs) And his types of movies are stable. man. Wow. Um, Richard, we love you. Please. Seriously. I was like, I was like the two listeners episode, Richard. Come on. Right. Come on. You would never. Um, It's not like you're doing anything else. Oh my God. (laughs) He's got 10 different projects. Yeah. Come on, Dan. Um, But like, yeah, I think to that point, but I also think to our point of, I, I don't know, I really go back to this was really part of the lighting in the bow was the timing thing, but also, like I said, the the configuration of the creative collaborators on this that I think influenced the end product in a way that, like, you have a one-to-one comparison here, you have the director's cut to show you, like, when you have the right people, right? Or when, like, the constellation of influences like created the film which was the theatrical release that we're talking about right and then when you let Richard Kelly go all Sorkin you know what I mean like you get (laughs) like you get the director's cut which is like he gets too caught up in his own world and and that's also part of why I don't think like I think he could but i also don't think that like he'd have to be willing to be open to creative collaboration in a way that he clearly was on this um again and i he doesn't strike me based on the interviews as somebody who's (laughs) willing to do that right and he like he's pontificating about streaming and stuff like that where he's like so maybe maybe he could produce like a mini series or something like that like a one off thing where he yeah. had it again but to me that would still be predicated on the fact that he had the right collaborators who could do the right. pacing and give him like good feedback to help him shape the vision and not get lost in the sauce you know of his own <laughs> ideas um like i think it could be there but to me it's predicated on like does his ego and wherever he's at mentally allow him to do there. And it, it seems like his at, he was definitely there and listening to the cast talk about him. He was super open to that on Donnie Darko. And then it's like, it just didn't happen again. So I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not optimistic is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not either. Even the streaming environment, like, in, I can't remember what interview it was, but um, 
you know, in the streaming environment, someone will give you five million bucks, ten million bucks, and say no strings attached, just make something bonkers so we can get a lot of like clicks on it. You know, like Netflix would probably do that, maybe like uh, Amazon Prime or whatever. But he won't. He he basically says, "I don't want to do anything small." Right. right? It's like, well, you're not doing anything, man. Like yeah, you're not like. There's no TV show. There's no anything going on. It's like he could easily get work if he wanted it. Yeah, and but I, I think also, he's kind of self-destructive. In yes, that way. he. I mean, I clearly says in that slash from interview we're talking about from last this earlier this year. It's like he like he tells you that's why I'm just like I'm not optimistic because he doesn't seem whatever mental space he was occupying, and I'm sure part of it was like awe and wonder and newness in a way that might like for him like actually like opened him up to collaboration, right? And just being like, wow, I'm getting to do this cool. Yeah, I'm really open to things and excited about this. And like, maybe I won't get this chance again. And then he somehow, I don't know, because like, he definitely is saying in that article too, like, I'm just really uninterested in projects. And I can't let go I need to have like full control. And you're like, okay, then there you go. Like, he's spelling it out for us. Like, don't hold your breath for me. Like, yeah. <laughs> like uh, which is yeah. a real bummer town. Which is sad because this is obviously, it's one of my favorite films. Would, would you guys, I think we debated this a little bit on Saturday night. One of the best films of the 20, 2000s. The aughts, the naughties, whatever you want to call it. Ew, do oh. not call it the naughties. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's already been called that. Too late. Ah, take put it back. that back on the hanger. We'll, put it I'll on the rack. I'll handle that in post. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a reverb to naughty. <laughs> You've already naughty. embarrassed yourself. Uh, um, so you, I don't know, Chris. What do you think? Yes, I mean, for me, answer, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's definitely my favorite movie of two thousand one. Okay. Wow, um, that's not that's jargon of a statement. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. That's like Royal that. Tenenbaums. Because like, yeah, I'm you brought at that real back. Um, I was looking. At, what's the I would list? I would say the World Tenenbaums is. Oh wait, no, Dying Dark is better. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. again, it's a part of this is very. So I fully admit we were talking about this on Saturday. Like, I think my part was like it's going to be on AMC Classics, right? Um, <laughs> no, this is exactly what I said. Is this? What is did you like, say? AMC plays The Godfather on loop. Like, n- this is going to. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be one of those films just going to play over and over again. Yeah, like, okay. Whatever so- it's called in twenty thirty five. Right. I, I mean, I agree. Like, in the sense of, I do think there's, like, analogous things. Like, will it get a Criterion release? Absolutely. Like, this is primo, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing for me, like, in terms of, you know, like, nerd film canon. Um, Yeah, I think it's hard for me with this movie to, like, separate, like, be, like, in a weird way. I'm like, I I don't know. I want to try to class it in like a broader film context but i'm like it's just it feel which again is i guess the testament to something it feels very personal like i ha- clearly have like we all are talking about a very subjective personal attachment to this movie for some reason <laughs> it's like okay computer for music it's your introduction yeah, exactly. into like you know what i mean it's our okay yeah like I don't, you know what i mean or like a different type of film because i do think that's part of it right is like all those elements we touched on but it's accessible and being like wow this is a film film but i like really like it and i want to rewatch it it has an accessibility like while still being you know kind of having these more serious film elements to it um so i don't know uh, yes, I think for me, absolutely. Like, is it one of the most, like, personally important or, like, influential films for me just in terms of my interest in film? Like, 100%. So, yeah. 
yeah it's it's the new godfather is my state i'm surprised chris <laughs> i thought you might have a stronger <laughs> negative reaction rewatching it yeah, we you thought know, you were going to be not so keen on it. Yeah, that I was mean, our prediction. You fooled us. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, you don't need to apologize. I just was surprised. No, I mean, the uh, if I if I had the nitpick, like the only thing that really uh, rubbed me the wrong way this time around was um, uh, Jenna Malone's character. Yep. Like it's it's very much like just I mean, and that's 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 what it's meant to be. So. Uh, you know, it's it. The movie's not the movie's called Donnie Darko, but it. I mean, her character is just so in service of him, and there's there's nothing nothing there for her, and she tries. And like, I I didn't remember. Like, I've seen this movie at least a dozen times, and it wasn't until this most recent watch where I'm like, wait, what the fuck? Her dad stabbed her mom five times or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, and her mom's missing at the end. No, I mean, right? What the hell? But also, I mean, I do think it's a testament to the fact that y'all wouldn't pay attention. I mean, I don't mean that. Like, I mean, but like, it's it's true true that y'all are like, wait, now twenty years later, I'm finally noticing that there's some ill service like female character in this movie. Just play the head over heels song again. You idiot. But yeah, so one that absolutely tracks, and two. That's again so funny that you never notice that because I always notice that it's like the thing about her parents yeah. like because to me that ramps up the feeling of dread at the yep. like as you which I feel like is kind of again a good subtle way but like they, how things start to fall apart like this is happening this is bad the party's happening party's feeling chaotic she shows up and it's like my mom's go- I mean because that's not only like it's it's her mom is she's saying her mom is gone when she shows up at that party and she's like i just know it's my stepdad so like she's getting screwed over again right yeah, like something yeah. bad is going to happen again you know and it's just all like sort of escalates from there um so There's yeah that's like, really funny that you never noticed <laughs> this girl's having a terrible life why does he why why save her like oh, i'm sorry <laughs> Wow. But I think, again, Richard Kelly, and if Whiteford had a better memory and can remember the director's (laughs) cut, if there was an explanation, like, was the implication that in this, in the non-tangent universe, if this stuff would have happened to her? Like, again, it's, I don't really understand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? um, I mean, I think it's clear she... Right. It's clear (laughs) she wouldn't have died, but I feel like perhaps there's also the implication that, like, again, that thing at the end where it's like, oh, my stepdad is come kidnap my mom. I don't know what she's implying, but the way she's sort of referencing, like, if that... I sort of always interpret as, like, the bad stuff that starts to happen wouldn't happen. Correct. Like, none of the best... So, I mean, yes, maybe the reason she moved, but, like, the subsequent danger that Mm -hmm. she's in Mm -hmm. wouldn't have happened. Butterfly effect, yeah. Yeah, kind of. I I guess, right? Because, yeah. yeah. He saves her and saves... I guess Frank too. Well, his Frank. mom and his sister, so they don't find that plane crash. Yeah, but I don't think that would have, that doesn't happen in the primary universe. But no, that's oh, wait, what I'm saying. It? No, I'm saying he know. goes back. That's, yeah, like, I, I don't know. Right. Maybe I could be wrong, but my interpretation and takeaway was always all the bad things that really ramp up and escalate yeah, yeah, at the yeah. end, including his mom yeah. and his sister and his okay, dad dying yeah. in that plane crash, like, don't happen in the primary universe if he dies. But yeah, you're also, right. You're right. But, but it's also, also the same engine that kills him. Correct. The, but yeah. that's well, sort of the split is like he. Yeah. Yes, but yes, it doesn't make any sense. But again, <laughs> thematically <laughs> and mood wise, I feel like again because he had the right collaborators and you get lost in the sauce, like in the director's cut, 
you get, I don't know, I always got that vibe. Like, I think it worked in the sense of I knew that the the thing that needed to be communicated was communicated effectively, which is these things are getting worse and worse and worse. And Donnie's being warned constantly, like, you need to do stuff. You need to expose, you know what I mean? The bad yeah. stuff keeps happening, exposing all these terrible things in this timeline. And here's how you save it. Here's how you make this bad stuff, you know, erased. You got to go back in time and be in that room, you know? But Swayze wouldn't have been outed. He would have committed suicide. I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I don't know enough about, but I don't think that's important. I mean, maybe I would argue that's part of why the movie works in this, the theatrical version is he doesn't overexplain stuff. So you right, don't right. need to think and nitpick about that stuff. I mean, some people will like Mad World cover. Just yes, take care of everything. That's what the yeah. subreddits are for, right? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? No, but like, you just take away, which is what I always did, was that bad things are happening and they're escalating, and only Donnie can sort of see that and understand that and understand how to change that, right? And so that's how he's the hero at the end. Yeah. Um, and then going back sort of helps save all these people in different capacities by him sacrificing himself, but. Again, I also think, again, the duality that you were talking about, Chris, is there's like that element, which just like makes it appealing in a way that's really accessible because they don't over make it super esoteric. But there's also the elements that if you want to nitpick that stuff, you can go on a subreddit, right? And like be Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, this, but uh, in theory, like blah, 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 you know, you can do that stuff. So like the movie works on multiple levels. Yeah, it makes more sense than Primer. I'll tell you that much. Um, Okay. Any final close? Closing thoughts on Donnie Darko. Anything you guys want to say? Say your piece. I mean, it, I, I, I've been very, this is probably one of the anniversary uh, revisits of this show where I had just as much fun watching it as I did. And I, I, I said something similar with uh, American Werewolf in London, but even, this one even more so, where it's just yeah. like, and it, it all has to, it all, I think, comes down to the 2001. What a year. Yeah. <laughs> what a year. Oh my God. You know, besides 9-11. But. Jeez Louise. Uh, I'll say, yeah, I just want to acknowledge game. this moment in time where, like, I mean, this is the only episode I've been on where we all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, really, like, you know, are just simpatico in, yeah. in, in some ways. Not in every detail, but simpatico in uh, our... Friendship origin story. No, I'm just Donnie Darko solidified our adult friendship. I guess we I don't all, know. We celebrate the entire catalog of Richard Kelly. Is that nope, what brings that's us all not together? what we're saying. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> next up, Southland Tales. No. Yeah. Oh man, anyway, what is so, next up on Film Trays? Oh uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, the Jake Johnson pandemic movie. What? Uh, yeah. So you wrote this with uh, what's the guy's name? Trent O'Donnell's the director. What? Uh, I think they like wrote it together. They got an idea. Everybody mm-hmm. was locked up for the for COVID. Uh, it's a small independent movie uh, called Ride the Eagle, um, and so it's going to get released on VOD July thirtieth. It should be a nice little small film uh, that we can dive deep into here on Film Trace. Molly, thank you for joining us. It's been a been a yes. pleasure. Can't wait to come back for the game. <laughs> yeah, thank season you five thank tease you so much. the game coming up. <laughs> <laughs> thank right, you, thank for, you for having me <laughs> you're, you're always welcome uh, this has been Full Trace